This episode of Australian Gothic was recorded on the unceded lands of the Turbal, Yagara, Ngunnawal, Nyambri, and Kwantamooka people. Welcome to the, a bonus episode of Australian Gothic. I don't have a scenario for you today. Um, I, my I have apologies. One. I have one. You do? I, yep, what little I know about today's subject. Uh, hello and welcome to Australian Gothic. And you're at a... Uh, they weren't, He didn't really do drag balls. He more just did nightclub nights, didn't oh, he? Oh, are you going to do the giving birth thing? I was going to do the giving birth thing. Yeah, because yeah. I was going to... Okay, well, actually, let's do it. Because I, I didn't know that you knew that. So, and I didn't want to spoil it. So... Let's let's do that. Let's do that. Okay. <clears throat> the club is pumping, and a and a small person has come out on stage. Uh, they're wearing what looks like a luchador mask, and they are dressed as a pantomime of a heavily pregnant lady. They dance around. They go really hard. You almost wonder like how they could possibly go this hard without drugs, and then you realize, oh, okay. It's Josie. Josie, how are you? <laughs> Hi, I'm okay. How is everyone else? Just as the music reaches a tempo. Uh, Josie starts screaming. Uh, they fall down the stage, put their knees up, blood and gore starts shooting out of their crotch. Then you see a person stands up. It's me, Lucas. I was, I was being like carried around by Josie and I was just birthed in like an incredibly violent way on stage. How's everyone going? Good. Um, Good. We're attached to some sausages that we stuck up there earlier and I just stopped to have a snack. <laughs> I, I start throwing the, the sausages, which are covered in, like, you know, costume blood into the crowd, and they, they, they gobble it up. But then you realise that I am also a pregnant lady. <laughs> and I start dancing around. Uh, we, we both start, like, dancing around the beat, chucking, like, bloody viscera into the crowd. And then I start screaming and giving birth. There is even more blood, even more, like, mangled up sausages. And I give birth to a lovely Jules, also wearing, like, a bejeweled luchador mask. How are you, Jules? I'm, I'm very good and covered in blood and sausages, which is what I've always wanted. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this makes me Josie's grandchild yeah. in this, so that's exciting. I'm impressed by my strength. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, was, I was trying to think what would be the funniest configuration of, like, given what I know about our various heights and body types. <laughs> yeah, that's wonderful. I think Josie would be an amazing grandma. Yes. I, oh, I'm going to be so good. I'm going to be so great. I already mm. have that energy anyway, because yeah. I always ask people mm. to like text me when they get home and everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is going to be the last Josie-led episode for a little while, while I take some time off to go attend some other pressing matters. Um, but I'm glad to be kind of leaving on with a bonus episode and covering this topic, which is Lee Bowery. Before I get started, I just wanted to ask you folks what your introduction to Lee Bowery was. You don't have to tell me any facts about Lee Bowery, just like how did you find out about Lee Bowery? I learned about him very, very briefly when I was studying my undergrad honours thesis, which was sort of on like on glam rock queer scenes and later queer oh, wow. scenes. And I didn't, yeah, I didn't, I didn't end up putting anything about Bowery mm -hmm. in because it wasn't quite like it didn't fit um, with what I was doing and what and, and the scope of what I was writing about. But yeah, I remember like seeing some of his work in in, you know, art books and going, oh, <laughs> <That's wonderful. laughs> and what about you, Lucas? 
I was mostly ignorant of Lee Bowery until about like 2015, 2016. And that's because uh, I'm, you know, I haven't spoken to them in ages, but I knew a group in Brisbane called the Stitchery Collective. Those, those mm-hmm. girls all went to QT Fashion School at the same time I was going to film school. And so, you know, following them on social media, I heard they were doing this thing called the Lee Bowery Ball. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, what the heck is that? And then I saw like the crazy costumes, you know, the hard clubbing stuff. And I realized I'd probably seen glimpses of Bowery throughout my life just for like, you know, through like filmmaking photography. And uh, I was like, wow, that looks really cool. And for a while, like my wife and I were like, you know, know, my then girlfriend, now wife, were like, you know, man, we should go to one of these things. But I was like, uh, would that be like intruding on like a queer space or something like that? But uh, it looked like a lot of fun. And no, I understand now that like, no, like I think basically anyone can go to those. Oh, absolutely. Because for reasons we'll get into shortly, I think that it opens up a really great space for people who just don't want to be cishet for however long. Um, (laughs) And you know. My first exposure to Lee Bowery was in 2019. I was on a second date with someone and between the first and second date, she mentioned that she was going to an aforementioned Bowery Ball. And I was like, oh, it's called Bowery House that year, I think maybe. Oh, you're right, Bowery House, yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think, I don't know if it changes, but um, I was like, who the fuck is that? Um, and they were like, yeah, I got to get a mask for it. And she asked me if I could knit masks. And I was like, I've never tried, but like, I'm sure I could. Um, and so I ended up knitting her a balaclava and she requested a little hole in the top of it for her long ponytail um, as well. Oh. And I remember it was, it was the second date and yet it, we were doing the classic queer woman thing of like (laughs) I don't know if this is actually a date I don't know if she even likes me and we got to the bar and I I gave her the um, knitted mask and I also um uh she gave me a handmade card that she'd like made the front of it was like (laughs) um she made a collage out of different colored paper of like her wearing the balaclava and her long ponytail. And I was like, and I was still like, I don't know if she likes me. Oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. This is the gayest thing ever. Look, I can deeply relate to like someone doing something extremely affectionate and still being like, Oh, do they like me? Oh, absolutely. Hmm. Um, and yeah, so that was my first introduction to Lee Bowery and, um, they didn't end up wearing that mask. They gave it to, they ended up just wearing like, they, I think they ended up wearing like a full body black sort of like lycra suit and only realized when they saw the photos back that you could absolutely see all of, um, all of her bits <laughs> through it. Um, but yeah, there you go. Um, so that was my introduction, but here's my introduction for the listeners and for you guys as well. So in this bonus episode, I'll be talking about Lee Bowery, his biography, his creative practice, and his ongoing influence. Before we get started, I want to make it clear that I try to avoid the worship of celebrities, and I think it's important to celebrate the work and the legacy of a person, but to also not pretend that they're infallible. And I don't think it's helpful to skip over the problematic elements of people, no matter how great their art is. Um, I extend this to both the living and the dead, uh, as I think truth-telling is important, and can add context to someone's work. So the biography for Lee Bowery is both incredibly rich, but tragically short. 
He's been described as a club promoter, dancer, performance artist, fashion designer, queer activist, and artist's muse. He was all of these, but his continued legacy decades after his death go to show that he and his work was greater than the sum of these labels attached to him. Bowery was born in 1961 in the Melbourne suburb of Sunshine. Bowery wanted to be a fashion designer and studied for two years at RMIT before he left due to his distaste of the restrictions imposed by formal fashion design training. He was attracted by the then popular New Romantic movement of the 1980s underground London, a movement which fused the nightclub scene with art and fashion. For the most mainstream and popular shorthand, think to Boy George, who was a friend of Bowery's. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, So at the age of 19, he left the colony for London and began his career as a performer, which continued until about eight weeks before his death. He worked in retail and appeared in commercials and built up his renown as a performer and fashion icon, appearing in style publications that would be proudly displayed in shop windows back in Melbourne, independent fashion boutiques. These publications were how many Australians followed Bowery's career and lifestyle. By 1985, he became the public face of Taboo, a nightclub in, how do you say that? Leicester? Leicester. Leicester. L-E-I-C-E-S-T-E-R square. Yeah, that's Leicester. Leicester. The Brits, (laughs) they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This club was originally staged once a fortnight, but ended up becoming a weekly event in the year that it operated. It was closed a year after due to drug soliciting. The club's dress code was... Dress as though your life depends on it or don't bother. Oh, I love that. (laughs) That's so cool. The fashion was extreme. The sexuality was extreme. The drug use was rampant. Gemba? Gemba norms. Gender norms were pushed. (laughs) And song selection was often unexpected and didn't necessarily suit the vibe. Did you just assume my gemba? I just assumed your gemba. (laughs) Gemba fluid. It was said that the party never actually truly started until... Oh, fuck me dead. (laughs) What's going on? I'm leaving this all in. Thank you. That's all right. You pay for the premium, which is actually somehow worse than the main fee. (laughs) (laughs) It was said that the party never actually truly started until Lee Bowery would make an appearance in a never-before-seen look. After Taboo closed, Bowery continued to perform on stage in front of camera... Uh, He designed and created costumes not only for himself, but for ballet performances with his collaborator, Michael Clark. He traveled around the world performing in nightclubs as himself and as part of various music groups he formed. In 1988, he received word that he had HIV positive status. He continued to perform over the following four years and his works arguably became much more abstract during this time. Uh, In 1994, he married his longtime friend and assistant, Nicola Bateman. His last performance was in November of 1994, and on New Year's Eve, at the age of 33, Lee Bowery died of an AIDS-related illness, something he kept hidden from everyone, including his wife, Nicola Bateman. So now, here is where I'll change gears and get into why Lee Bowery was worth talking about then and continues to be worth talking about now. Because so far, I've just given you a bunch of information, but I haven't really built a picture. So far, he's just a guy who did some things. Lee Bowery was an out and practicing gay man who stood at six foot three or 190 centimeters and he weighed around 110 kilograms. 
You might assume that someone of this stature may use clothes to hide their form, since being someone in a large body is viewed as acceptable only for cis men who are presumably straight and fit into the hegemonic ideal of masculinity. But Bowery went the other way and enhanced and morphed parts of his body to challenge ideas of gender. To let the man speak for himself, I'm going to read a 1981 excerpt of Bowery's diary. I believe that fashion, where all the girls have blue eyes, blonde, blow-waved hair and a size 10 figure, and all the men have clear skin, a moustache, short blow-waved hair, a masculine physique and appearance, stinks! I think that there should be no main rules for behaviour and appearance. Therefore, I want to look as best I can through my means of individuality and expressiveness. Firstly, being opposite to established images and trends. Secondly, we are creating, not mimicking, another constant. And thirdly, and very importantly, we, and this is one of my strongest beliefs, batter down the stereotype sex male to female roles and use anything to achieve an effect and constantly encroach on sacredly classified men's or women's territory. This is one of my principal ideas and this motivates my appearance and most friendships. So most, yeah, like just, sorry, just as an aside, um, I love how he mentions here that these principles don't relate only to fashion, but that they extend to friendships as well. To me, that like speaks to the way that queerness isn't only in the way that we experience sexuality and gender, but how we interact with one another and move throughout life. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. That Wow. That quote is amazing. Yeah. yeah. And that was him at like age 21. Oh, <laughs> radical. It is. It's kind of incredible because, you know, I, I sadly kind of made the assumption like this dude, you know, being a club promoter was going to be kind of a kind of himbo, you know, like kind of a, you know, a dumb guy who's good at fashion, but yeah, that was a uh, wrong of me to do that. Like, yeah, he sounds like he sounds very articulate. Oh yeah, like yeah. There's definitely there's. A, I'll get into it later. There's definitely like debate around like how deep he thought about his costumes and stuff like that. Because in sort of more recent years, there's been a lot more analysis than there ever was sort of when he was alive. Uh, it can get real freaking deep. But if you believe in death of the author, then I think you can read whatever you want from costumes as well. Um, I'm just gonna share my screen now. Don't worry to listeners, this is not, uh, I don't know, this is not necessarily gonna be a video thing. So if you'd like chuck this on in your car and you're just like, oh fuck, I'm not gonna be able to see Yeah, so (laughs) all these, everything I'm gonna be showing, um, Jules and Lucas, I will provide links so you can view them yourselves. And also um, I'm gonna get Jules and Lucas to describe all the images as well. Yeah. Um, can you see, so you see that white bit up on the screen there? Yep. Cool, yep, cool, cool. Yep. Uh, all I can yes, see is that's, white. That's good. That that's helpful? what we want. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And just as an aside as well, his home was extremely queer as well. Uh, his walls were covered in stra- Star Trek wallpaper, plastic <laughs> flowers, oh. decorated skirting boards, and rooms were UV lit. Oh, that's oh, good. Um, that's really no, funny. We... At, at, in in my big queer share house, we have actually seriously discussed turning one room into like a blacklight oh room. Oh my gosh! <sighs> so yeah, I'm like, okay, well, Lee Bowery would absolutely. Prove. Lee Bowery approved. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Yeah, both Bowery and his housemate and fellow performer Trojan uh, both said it was an extension of what they wear. So like their house. So here, 
Can, oh. Do you want to describe what you see? This is a photograph of Lee Bowery, 1984, by Steve Pike, and it's in his home. Okay, it's it's Lee Bowery, and he, he yeah. uh, is, yep, um, he's lying on a blue couch that looks like it might, might even be a blue velvet couch, <laughs> looks very soft, and um, he's got like a pink kind of, a pink shirt, and then these like red gloves with pink ruffles that are the same fabric as his shirt, and he's got red tights on and silver mm-hmm. shoes. He's wearing like like it looks like a terry toweling cowboy hat. <laughs> oh my god, it uh, does. W- yeah, with like one bit of it folded up with oh no no that's that's a thing in the background. Um, there is Star Trek wallpaper in the background. It's it's original. Star and it's Trek. very distracting. It's original series. It's very distracting. It's very it's so beautiful. dense. Sorry. Um, sorry, what was that? Uh, the Star Trek wallpaper. It's so dense. Like I know. Yeah. I love it. It looks like it looks kind of like a computer wallpaper background that I might have downloaded in like nineteen and put tile on instead of like yes. Yeah. It's not thick yeah. enough to fill the screen. Um, and he's got he's got this really interesting makeup that's sort of like it's it's in reds and whites and blues. It's almost clown like, but it's not really like a clown shape. It's just colour block shapes on his face some like semicircles and giant giant fake eyelashes it's like really kind of abstract art just just on his face this is yeah he's just chilling he's just on the couch no no uh floor coverings either (laughs) oh yeah no that looks like a naked concrete that is a poor queer person's house if i've ever seen one it looks like there's paint stains on the floor as well so this could well be their workspace um, well, it is there. Mm. Yeah, so um, one thing, peek behind the curtain, everyone. I wrote so many notes and only put it together properly uh, this morning and not everything made it. Um, but I will note something that didn't make my script was that Lee Bowery was very much working class even throughout this time and he um, always had housemate. He was always in a share house and uh, lived with friends and in social housing as well. I just thought I would point that out too. Um, Because I think there's an assumption that, uh, especially with the heir and his legacy now and how much he has inspired fashion designers, like high-end fashion, I I feel like it's easy to assume that he was of that class. I think that for younger people and younger, uh, including younger queer people, but not necessarily, there really is an assumption that for queer artists who were work you know who who are considered like top of their field mm-hmm. you know who were working in the like in the 80s 70s and 80s and 90s that they must have come from like very wealthy backgrounds because particularly these days it's difficult to be really really influential in art movements unless you've got a lot of money behind you to start with but there's sort of a couple of factors in this which is that like or certainly, I mean, by the 80s, it was starting to drop off because of Thatcher. But in England and, and also, you know, in Australia as well, um, there had been for a while better access to higher education and arts education. Mm-hmm. So more people from working class backgrounds had been able to access tertiary arts education. Yeah. And also queer people still have a, no matter what their background 
are more likely to experience job and housing insecurity due to being queer. And often, um, and in, in sort of the major cities around the world that had big, big, vibrant queer scenes in the late half of the 20th century, although, you know, forever, let's be honest, but definitely in the late half of the 20th century, those were incredibly working class areas because that's where people gravitated towards. Yeah, no, that's that's so interesting that there are those through lines. Um, and it's interesting that you bring up Thatcher as well, because uh, later some of the themes that come through in Bowery's work. Oh, sorry, I was just going to say, you also see like a lot of the really, you know, before it gets to like, you know, the really, you know, gaudy, expensive labels, you see a lot of this stuff. I'm oh, sorry, now you can hear my dog. Uh, you see a lot of the stuff being made by like people who don't have a lot of resources and, you know, you know, making yes. do and, you know, often having not, not having a lot of resources makes you a little bit more creative, but also, you, yeah, basically you see like, you know, Gucci, Louis Vuitton and all that stuff, you know, nicking stuff from people who do not have anywhere near the resources and then like slapping, oh. uh, slapping a massive Lucas, price tag on it. You have just hit on something yep. that is absolutely going to be brought up later. Oh shit. We did the thing. <laughs> <Fuck>. Yeah. <laughs> Um, no, that's great. Fantastic. Yeah. And just to add to that, um, so I have, I borrowed a few, uh, books about Bowery out from my uni library and there's a sort of a year by year biography in the back of one. And yeah, so he moved to London in 1980 and stayed, um, in a youth hostel behind St. Paul's Cathedral. Like that's where he lived. Definitely not an inner city latte sipping lefty. Like (laughs) I'm sure Mm. people would love to assume. Now I'm going to get into some of his works and performances. Um, There's no way I could ever be adequately thorough. Um, As I said, I'll cite everything as well as some like of the books that I borrowed so you can dig deeper. There's just so much to look at. Even if you don't read, there's just so much to look at. So Bowery was a great fan of John Waters, whose movies had a profound effect on his aesthetic and humour. The 1972 film Pink Flamingos was his favourite film. And I believe you can see that in so many of his works that come through. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that colour work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, good point. So many sources I've come across keep comparing Lee Bowery to Dane Edna and Barry slash Barry Humphreys. Oh, yeah. Because they're both Australian, had a cheeky sense of humour and both dressed outside of what was expected of them. Um, but I actually super reject this comparison. Um, I contend that Barry Humphreys and Lee Bowery are nothing alike. As Lucas and I discussed in our episode on Barry Humphreys and the character of Dame Edna, the joke was that Humphreys was dressed as a woman, put on a voice and was making fun of women. He consistently punched down in his humor. Whereas in my view, Bowery made fun of the concept of gender itself and punched up at this yeah i'll get into it in a sec but yeah there was no joke that haha look at me dressing as a woman that wasn't part of it yeah also like dame edna as a concept <laughs> not not just barry Huffings, but like the aesthetic that like everybody loves the big dame edna glasses right the big fancy glasses but that's it that's the entire aesthetic legacy <laughs> yeah it's one thing and it was just sort of an exaggeration of a particular kind of older woman. It wasn't even like something particularly no. new and original. Bowery is fundamental to like 
avant-garde fashion. Absolutely. Oh my god. Yeah, oh, I'm I, so mad. It, right. <laughs> but it really is. Oh, they're both Australian and have a sense of humor. And um, queer. Well, yeah. Sort of, yeah. Well, it's like yeah. Barry Humphreys would be, you know, so Dana would be wearing a dress and would just have some stupid shit slapped on it. Like, I don't know, a frilled neck lizard made of like diamonds or some shit. Yeah. And it's like, Lee, Barry wasn't doing that. Barry was doing like, you know, shit that was next level. Yeah. And, and Barry would have made that frilled neck lizard. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Barry manipulated not only clothing, but his own body to totally change his appearance kind of like a non-invasive cosmetic surgery. He often taped and restricted and pushed parts of himself around to create new shapes. One source I came across described Bowery as an artist who articulated an entirely new grammar for the body. And I really like that. I think that's oh, a really nice phrase. Yeah, that's gorgeous. I don't know why, but it gives me like goosebumps. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to go to the next slide and I want to ask, Lucas, I'll ask you to describe what, well, both of you, whoever, both of you can describe what you see for the listeners. Um, so this is Lee Bowery. Like you've said, he's done a little bit of body alteration, I guess. He's uh, pushed up his pectorals to look like cleavage. Uh, he's wearing a green satiny dress. Oh, sorry, there's two photos, by the way, one in color that's a medium close up and one that's like a full body shot in black and white. He's wearing a a dress that is uh, made of frilly green feathers. Uh, up the top, it is more of a like satiny material that is buttoned up, but like showing off his his bust. He's wearing pink eye makeup that sort of transitions to like an orange blush. Uh, his lipstick is black on top, red on the bottom, and uh, surrounds uh, the bit below his bottom lip. Uh, he has painted black eyebrows, um, white, I guess, foundation all over the rest of his head. And then most distinct of all, purple Nickelodeon slime kind of dripping down his head. <laughs> yeah, he's he's bald and he's sort of, it's like he's dumped dark purple paint on the top of his head and let it, yeah, slime, and let it like trickle down. So, but like in ways where it's sort of forming almost, almost like a fringe above like over his forehead and then longer bits down the side of his face. Yeah. So it's like hair, but it's not. The bottom half of his of this green dress is uh, what looks like um, ostrich or marabou feathers. Yeah. Also yeah. dyed green. Oscar and then the, the grouch has been yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then there's like stripy sequined leggings. Um, I can't see what colour they're in because that I can only see them in the black and white picture, but oh, I'm absolutely frothing over <laughs> the, the pink and orange on his eyes and cheeks. It's a sick gradient. Yeah. And I'm like, I could, I could recreate that look. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm just like... <laughs> in, in like the best ways possible, mm. the photo on the left really reminds me, me of you, Jules. Oh, that um, is so oh. nice. Yeah. 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 I love that. And it's like, it's mm. just like such a beautiful mm. portrait pose. Just, I don't know. It's so hard to explain because he's, he's got his, he's got one hand up and the other sort of crossing over his body, but he's, but it's sort of very much a, um, it's like a really, really classic 
theater pose. Yeah. Um, like his ha- it makes his hands look incredibly like delicate and feminine and his body is tilted a little bit and it's just it's a it's a beautiful stance and yeah, his his hands look absolutely gorgeous in that. I know. Like, mm. Yeah. It's the the image on the left it's sort of like um and this is something I'll talk about in a second is like the way that you would read that body mm. I believe you'd think of it as more feminine um mm. but then there are all these other aspects that aren't gendered or anything because what gender yeah. is um Nickelodeon yeah. slime on your head and yeah. and yeah it's and a, the winner yeah. of this year's kids choice awards is yeah <laughs> <laughs> like- oh my gosh <laughs> Do not want Lee Barry hosting that. Oh, God. Yeah, no. Um, Or it would go the the fuck off and the kids would lose their minds. That's true. Um, Oh, the outfit is so, like, it it looks insane. Yeah. I love, I'm like, in the best possible way. And then he's just doing this incredibly beautiful, elegant pose. Yes. And it's like, like, there's nothing that's, like, it's, it's obvious obviously fun you know and he's taking joy in this but it's like it's very clear that he's not a joke yes yes oh yeah it's very good yeah um he is such a good poser like um i have a few photo books uh so i one of the books i have borrowed is um it's titled looks and it's by fergus greer and it's just all different looks of lee bowery um Mm. that aren't easy to find on the internet necessarily um and shh, that's where i took this one because um, <laughs> i want to find a full body picture of the outfit um to get my art wank on here are some ways that bowery's art has been perceived and analyzed one piece argued that bowery's works could fall into the romantic artistic tradition and that both the romantic artist and the drag performer undergo what t.s Eliot called the continual extinction of personality the erasure of self in order to make way for a new, beautiful and poetic entity. The piece went on to say that Bowery was capable of escaping from himself into other bodies, more poetic and eternal than his own, in a manner capable of extending the romantic tradition while operating within its defining conventions. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, his work evoked fascination rather than delight, a beauty utterly unclassifiable. And I think that kind of, I mean, that's sort of why I was having a trouble articulating what I find so beautiful about these images, Mm. uh, about this look. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that Bowery's work could fall into romantic artistic tradition, considering he was literally a part of the new romance scene. Um, So that's not a stretch. I was just going to say that, like, you know, his use of colour in particular is so, like, like it's this this use of colour and shape that is incredibly, incredibly beautiful and joyous. And it's sort of like, like to the point where it sort of transcends the fact that his body is not falling into those kind of beauty norms. Yeah. yeah. Because yeah. it's like, it, it's it's almost like there's, it, it doesn't, it's so unbelievably doesn't matter. Like it's like his his body is being used for art and fashion in a way that, like there's there's no crossover Venn diagram with that concept of like gender and beauty norms. That's just yes. an entirely alien concept to what he's doing. Yeah. Jules, you folks, both of you folks are just like hitting on things that oh. 
like <laughs> big brain scholars are writing about. It's incredible. <laughs> I love hearing it. Yeah. Yes. I was I was also going to say just for clarity's sake. Um. So the new romantics there. Yeah. Just to because I'm not super familiar with like the you know proper understanding of romantics like. There was a fascination with kind of, you know, 18th century fop wear during yes. the 80s, right? Because yes. I'm going by a lot of music videos, like, you know, you know Annie Lennox sort of stuff, where they would be dressing yeah. up as, like, French aristocrats. So there was a... Yeah, yeah. That was kind of a, a tenet of uh, the new romantic look. Is that is that right to assume? Yeah, a lot of yeah. frilly sleeves and... Um, and and waistcoats and very, very gorgeous fabrics. Yeah, yeah. like, okay. I think... This 1984 mm. picture, of yeah. him, I think that's a lot of that sort of era. Because I was like, "What the fuck is romanticism?" I don't. I'm not an art person. <laughs> um, and I, I read that romanticism values spontaneity. This is a good opportunity opportunity to note that all of Bowery's garments were made over a short period of time for a specific event or night out. So, like, he responded to the immediacy of his environment. So he's what... just like me for real. Yeah, it's just whatever he was vibing, absolutely. Um, and also, I um, also will mention as well that um, Bowery didn't just have great artistic vision, but he had incredible technical skill as well. He drafted patterns, cut fabric, sewed, and even learned how to make corsets. Um, oh, wow. He lived with, I don't know how to say that, uh, another French word, corsetier, corsetier. Corsetude, yeah. Um, they would buy secondhand corsets, pull them apart and remake them to learn the construction techniques, um, yeah. which as an aside is just a great way to learn how to make garments generally. Um, mm-hmm. And his constructions weren't just visually interesting, but they could survive nights of like rigorous clubbing um, yeah. and all the things that he would do. Yeah. Um, so, okay. And then the next slide... Here we go. This is a uh, 1989, uh, another look. Do you folks, Jules, do you want to describe what you see here? Yes. Okay. He's sitting on, it's a black and white photo, and he's sitting on a, I think it's a piano stool in front of a piano in uh, what looks like a slightly dodgy, I mean, I want to say it's a warehouse because the floor (laughs) is concrete and with weird spots on it, and there's like, just some fabric draped behind the piano, and that always sort of screams warehouse mm. to me. He's wearing. Okay, you know what? I'll I'll leave the very best of this for the last bit. Great. But um, he's got like knee-high sparkly boots on, like very sequined. Uh, he's got a kind of like a like a showgirl or belly dancer, like fringed and sequined bra top on mm-hmm. that's also got like some cool shoulder epaulettes. He's got a mask on that looks like halfway between a luchador mask and that, that sweet fringe thing that Orville Peck always wears. <laughs> yes, exactly. And he's also wearing a giant fluffy merkin, which <laughs> is a, a fake pubes. It, in um, a beautiful triangle. It is this, truly yeah. the centre of the piece. Yeah, it is. It's just like, I just opened it up and I'm like, there's his badge. Yeah. Um, Josie actually like went to the next slide before and I was just like, oh. <laughs> what the? <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. A rogue live what the moment. If I've ever seen one. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, so I thought I'd just leave this on uh, the screen while I talk about another sort of piece I read about 
Bowery's work. One piece I read noted how Bowery's works had recurring themes that ultimately made the audience confront the artificial creation of perceived gender-specific characteristics. Mm. So one of the first recurring themes is the way that he shaped his body. It obliged viewers to question the assumed integrity of the sexed body. And this paired with how he would always cover his head with masks. He might cover his entire head with a giant pom-pom or wear obscuring makeup. He would obscure his facial features to further challenge the viewers. He never made himself quote-unquote, look like a woman. Um, On the contrary, he went out of his way to make his features as unrecognizable as possible. Um, His costuming argued that femininity and masculinity have little, if anything, to do with the body. And his, like, bodily manifestations of both the feminine and the masculine fell short of... fell far short of either of them to any degree of, like wider satisfaction so which i love like so it's like yeah neither he's neither fulfilling what is considered to be acceptable femininity nor acceptable masculinity and and there was another piece i didn't really get to i didn't get to add it in i'll see if i can quickly find it so there was the way that bowery sort of like points to like how arbitrary is the body to gender and sexuality. Kind of reminds me, yeah, there was this piece that, it was my favorite one, and I'm sorry I can't describe it properly, but it was um, talking about Derrida and um, talking about how when one is faced with a quote-unquote monster, one may become aware of what the norm is, um, Mm. while they can't necessarily describe what the norm is. But when you're confronted with something that, just rejects all of that you understand what the norm is if that sort of makes sense yeah yeah um and and you become aware of like the history of this norm um and i think that i think that kind of ties together and i that is in line with what this other piece was saying about just obliges viewers to question what a sexed body is um yeah yeah i'm I'm looking at, we're still on, on the slide that we're looking at is still that, that one with the Merkin. But like, <laughs> of all the pictures that you've shown so far, this is the one that shows us most of his body. And the thing is that like, it's a really normal body. It is so normal. Mm. It's so normal. It's, um, it's, it's like, it's a little bit fleshy, mm-hmm. but, and, and I think what I, what I do really like about it is that there is, there is something in that that fleshiness that he shapes into being androgynous, not in the way that we normally think of androgeneity, which is, you know, almost sexless. Yes. yes. Like with nothing going on, but with like more going on, like, like his, his thighs are kind of round. He's got a belly. He's got enough flesh on his chest that he can like, stick it up in a in a push-up bra and make cleavage like yeah it's it's a body that is like rather than having no secondary sexual characteristics which is what people often think of when they talk about androgyny it's got lots of them I was going to keep this part for later oh. but I think <laughs> this has segued yeah. into actually I think now is a great time to talk about it so one of the reasons I want to talk about Bowery 
is, especially now, is that um, there's been a lot of discourse recently around Sam Smith and how they express their gender and sexuality. And like as a fat person, and I think fatness has a lot to do with it because the sexuality of fat people is already something that so many people are uncomfortable with, Mm. let alone that of a fat queer person. Um, And I think both of them, I mean, the way that what you just said is like, yes, that is a normal body. And, mm. and it does, but it also at the same time pushes back on what we consider to be androgynous. Um, yeah. But also we don't n- see normal bodies in like fashion and art and what, and particularly not high fashion. Like you absolutely don't see um, normal bodies and you don't see like, yeah, you, you don't see kind of anything like the, the beauty norms that are, that are pushed are actually a really, really extreme body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like they're not, the majority of people don't have that body and they, in order to have that body, they have to take huge interventions of yes. different kinds on their bodies. And like, yeah, sometimes you just see, but there's almost this idea that in order to be allowed to access like high fashion and beauty spaces, mm-hmm the price you have to pay is like that constant and ongoing intervention on your physical body, yeah. whether yeah. it's like diet or surgery or um, shaping garments or excessive amounts of like body hair removal or, um, or even just wearing a full face of makeup and contouring that changes how your face looks, but not in it. Like, you know that shot that first picture that you put of him he's his makeup doesn't look like makeup he's not drawing a face on his face he's decorating he's drawing art on his face yeah. yeah and um that's something that that i think you see a lot in in queer fashion and queer scenes is people using their bodies more as like a canvas for art rather mm-hmm. than yeah like i i found the the backlash to sam smith really fascinating because in the kind of like like his looks were incredible i want to be clear i th- i thought he looked they sorry i thought they looked great but it was avant-garde for that audience mm-hmm. yeah. but it was not <laughs> in in a queer space that would be that's you know vanilla. people would be like yeah people would be like oh, oh my gosh cool. that's an amazing look but it would be one of hundreds of amazing looks exactly yeah and the fact that people absolutely lost their minds oh they abs frothing at the mouth like and and i mean i guess particularly the like another person who who cops a very very little bit of this but definitely not the same is um is is Harry Styles and the difference between their trip because there's still definitely like there are definitely people who get very 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 cross and angry whenever Harry Styles does like wears something that isn't mm-hmm. completely masculine and he pretty much just only does that yeah like he he has fun with fashion people can have I like there's a whole lot of people who are like oh, look, masculinity's been destroyed. And then there are a whole lot of people who are like, he's not going far enough. And, yeah, um, exactly. You know, but he is also, he's he's a skinny, 
white. Uh, as look, as we know, he is a. Um, he has not informed us to the contrary that he is not a cis man yeah. or a cis straight man. I will say that I don't think people have a responsibility to to Disclose give that, that information. Yeah. And yeah. I my my actual take on on Harry Styles is that uh, he is a person who had a very, very, very large amount of intense media scrutiny about every aspect of himself from the time he was about 16. <laughs> and so I would p potentially understand why he would want to keep aspects of himself private. But that yeah. is all I'll say on, on Harry Styles. But um, there, there are a lot of queers who are very excited about what Harry Styles wears, mm -hmm. who were also very very rude about Sam Smith and Sam oh, Smith's yeah. body. Uh... And I really, really saw some fat hatred and like not just fat hatred, but also um, hatred of non-binary identity. Oh like, yeah. Yeah. In that perhaps Harry Styles's, you know, the way that he fucks with gender is more palatable because he to, he has not said to the contrary that he is not a cishet man. Well, so I came... Yeah, no, absolutely. You fucking hit the nail on the head. So I came across an interview with um, someone who hosted a panel discussing Lee Bowery's legacy, and they articulated something that I think is relevant here, and we kind of covered it in our two Sydney Mardi Gras episodes, um, that you know, queer culture is assimilated into the mainstream. This gets mm. to what you were saying before, Lucas, that uh, a lot of queer culture is plucked from the underground um, and from those with, like, precarious working-class backgrounds only to be, like, polished, cleaned mm. and made digestible to, like, a middle-class audience. While Bowery's works have been plucked from an underground scene and elevated to, like, higher fashion status and, you know, some of his pieces are in art galleries... At the time, his performances were sometimes shut down early or cancelled altogether due to public distaste. Yes. Um, yeah. So it's sort of like a, you know, it's nice to champion him now, but like, don't forget that people didn't like it at the time as well. Um, and, you know, while Harry Styles, I totally agree with you, Jules, like this isn't necessarily hatred on either of these people I'm about to mention. While Harry Styles and, you know, um, Tom Holland, is that Spider-Man? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're celebrated for wearing gender non-conforming clothing. This celebration seems very conditional upon how they perform masculinity in other ways, um, including, like, the size of their bodies. Sam Smith did not receive this celebration um, by many people who would, you know, celebrated Harry Styles and Tom Holland. Um, you know, and despite, like, you know, Sam Smith is non-binary. They're... they're still held to masculine ideals even though they shouldn't be um, well and i mean and that's that's a big issue with with like for non-binary people even within the queer scene is that there's there's sort of an idea that like if if you're non-binary and you do any form of gender and a lot of the time the gender that you're doing is is a big mix like what's happening with with a lot of this Lee Bowery stuff, there's there's a lot going on. If you're actually doing a look and you're challenging a gender norm, people often get they get very angry about it because it 
I think that it can sort of fall into or broadly fall into one of two categories, which is like a kind of a sexlessness, Mm -hmm. which is not bad. I think that, you know, people deserve to be allowed to wear weird shapeless sacks if they want to. People make a lot of jokes about non-binary people wearing like just overalls and looking like toddlers, but sometimes it's a cute look. Yes. (laughs) And um, wanting to be read neither as male or female is is quite a revolutionary act. Sam Smith is not saying I am a man or I am a woman. They are not trying to they're not trying to pass as it no. were. They're having fun. They they're um celebrating their own body and they looked amazing. Yeah. Um and I think that you know I'm I mean I'm I'm non-binary and there it's hard to explain the the gender euphoria of not being male or female and Mm. being like and and doing some fuckery and (laughs) um seeing people get really mad about it is like i'm i'm all right with it i'm i'm old and i can jade and i can deal and i'm like cool okay your ideas are wrong but i do feel i do feel pretty sad for like young non-binary people who are seeing the backlash but at the same time i'm also really excited for them that they got to see sam smith absolutely like teenagers wouldn't have been able to see lee bowery when he was no, working, no. Um, only like very, very lucky teenagers who, let's be, let's be real, were probably not living at home yes. and mm. were just involved in queer scenes at younger ages than maybe they should have been. Yeah. So something that this panelist said when they were talking about, you know, queer culture becoming mainstream, they're like, this isn't necessarily a bad thing for that very reason. Mm. Yeah. Um, it's just when you sort of take away the queer politics of it all um, yes. and make it palatable. That's when it's like kind of kind of missing the point there. So what do we have next? Oh, yeah, here we go. Oh. 1993 to 1994. So another thing I want to mention as well, um, Bowery would use piercings in his cheeks to affix a perspex ring in front of his mouth, giving himself the appearance of like a blow-up sex doll. Mm. Um, one source I came across said, like this is in a way showing that he was gender impossible. Um, oh, I, gender I impossible. That. Yes. Oh. Not Kim Possible. It's the queer Kim Possible. <laughs> oh. Oh, I want to like write that on my wall. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. Lucas, would you like to describe yeah, sorry. this? Yeah, yeah you you're right. It. Gender yeah. impossible. It's All great. right. So, so this is a a full body a full sorry. Fuck. Full body. A full body. <laughs> it's a body. No. It's a full body shot in color uh, from 1993, 1994. Uh, Bowery is wearing uh, either boots or boots and leggings that are made of a, a mix of like a satiny or metallic material that are a rainbow uh, that go from like sort of red, green, blue, yellow metallics. Uh, they go all the way up to his thighs. Uh, he is, I guess, a semi-profile. He has his legs out. He has his arm in the air and his wrist kind of flat. He has used similar material to cinch his stomach so that he has like a pot belly, but it's kind of like compressed as it gets towards his chest. He is then wearing crop top with a bust that is made of the same material that goes to his shoulders and forearms. Uh, he's got the bit of Perspex plastic to make him look like a doll, like a blow up doll. And he's wearing a hat that is pulled down over his eyes made of a translucent material 
and his skin looks like it is sort of bronze slightly. Were you going to mention Michaelia Cash at all, the Brisbane sort of body artist? Uh, no. Isn't Michaelia Cash the... No, 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 oh. sorry, there's, there is a different person. I oh, Never mind, I will look up their name, not Michaela Cash. No, 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 never mind. Yeah, no, never mind. Michaela Cash is like Let me... the, the liberal yeah, MP. Liberal fuck yeah, liberal fuckhead. What? <laughs> Hi, everyone, it's Editor Lucas. Uh, yeah, I that was a very funny mix-up of me to do, but the artist I'm referring to is not piece of shit Michaela Cash, but Michaela Stark, who is a Brisbane-based member of the fashion community who does these like really cool body contortion, body alteration works where she cinches parts of her body to make new and interesting shapes, a la Lee Bowery. Uh, what's extra eerie is we record this episode before the photo shoot she did with Sam Smith. Uh, that's just freaky. Uh, anyway, back to the main episode. Anyway, sorry, uh, to end that, um, yeah, we're seeing uh, like the body contortion but he's still doing this very, what I guess would be a very traditional kind of glam pose because it sort of shows off the body. Mm. Again, his poses are really good. Like they mm. they look like high fashion poses to me. Um, and that's probably also the direction of the photographers as well, I imagine. Do you reckon that's a like a British cop hat? I don't know. It looks, so like it's made out of fabric. Um, it It looks like it could be, a British cop hat, like one of the old sort of round ones from the bill. Like it's, it's almost got like a tulip shape to it. There's something very, um, yeah, it feels like, but also childlike. Like I'm just going to look this up, but I feel like it looks like something Noddy would wear. <laughs> that, you know, um, it's Nobby instead. Nobby. No, no, it's not. It's not. No, original Noddy, please. No, no, I mean, correct. But um, he wore a weird little elf hat, but there's, yeah, it's sort of bell shaped. Yeah, like, I think, I don't know, everything is so costumey and clown-like that it's possible that I'm just, you know, my brain is just firing up other images. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. And I want to also mention, like, is it Mons Pubis? Is that what that part's called? Yes. Yeah. Like, yeah, his Mons Pubis is, you know, it's chubby and it's there. You yeah. can see a little bit of pubic hair. And, again, mm. it's very much like none of my business whether there's a penis there or not. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. Um, but it's enough where you, yeah. you, you would be like, huh? Uh. <laughs> I want to see what that tattoo's of as well. There's a tattoo. looks oh, like yeah. a tattoo on his thigh. And I'm like, what's that? Uh, let's see. Oh, yes. Okay. So here we wow. get to an era of mm. Bowery's work. This is where he gets a bit more abstract. He performed all over the world, um, including in Tokyo, in a department store window uh, where he was just posing all day, wearing his funky stuff. Um, and <laughs> the dream. It was while he was in Tokyo that he found like a Transformers catalog and stuff. And he apparently, uh, according to one source I read, just was so inspired by the idea of him himself becoming a Transformer. Um, like making, and I guess this, I mean, this has kind of already been his theme anyway, and that he somewhat alien making different shapes but he really lent into that um at this point he did a lot of like lots of changing shapes including like pregnant bodies and was really fascinated by transformation particularly at this moment um and then we have okay here we go and it was sort of um definitely around this time he was well into his um 
working and personal relationship with Nicola Bateman, who uh, in 1994 would become his wife. Now, one thing, I'll pause here to talk about his relationship with Nicola Bateman. They met, they became best friends. Um, they worked together. She was very much dedicated to him. She would, you know, add beading to his outfits. Um, she was very much a part of some of his performances. If you don't mind, folks, I'm going to play. So here is the performance, um, 1994, uh, talking about transformation it includes giving birth to his wife. Um, so here we go. Oh, this is it. Can you hear that? Yeah. Oh, Jesus. Oh, boy. Absolutely good. <laughs> yeah. Oh, new yeah. Hellraiser kicks ass. Oh my god. So, listeners, I just, uh, I'll link this in the show notes, but I just yeah. showed a 1 minute 50 video of Lee Bowery and Nicola Bateman at Wigstock 1994, where uh, Lucas sort of talked about before where he uh, gave birth on stage after singing, I guess, a version of Love is All You Need. I don't know. That was incredible, and like I, yeah. Now, now the picture that you've put up is like obviously the the harness contraption, yes. of how he manages to carry his wife around, and she was like hidden under this, you know, very structured big garment. That is that is the most incredible drag reveal. It's so like that <laughs> having a whole other person in your costume is. I, I, oh, well, we fuck. did two in our scenario, so it's not that. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, we did. We did do three. Um, we did actually do. <laughs> oh my god, Josie, you're just like somehow carrying both Lucas, who is carrying. Right. <laughs> <laughs> now you see the contraption; yeah. it makes even yeah. less sense. There would have to be some sort of wheelbarrow yeah. in there. And... This is a, an Octomom situation. <laughs> um, Guess oh one God. could be on my back. On yeah. The... But yeah. Oh. One one butt baby. We pick who's the butt baby. <laughs> <laughs> butt baby. <laughs> because to be clear, oh. folks, so this photo that I'm showing Jules and Lucas now is of, yeah, uh, Lee Bowery, Nicola Bateman, um, showing the harness. They're sort of in tights and high heels, both of them. Oh, Nicola Bateman is, is naked. Um, also, he would be getting such a whiff if she did not wash her butt properly. Yeah. Um, because <sighs> Nicola Bateman is upside down. Her face is in his crutch. Her butt is poking straight up in the air. In an inter- Just queefing right in his face. Her, Absolutely. Her legs, her legs are bent and kind of her feet are tucked up under his chin. And her arms are kind of like while supported by this harness going around his waist to hold on. It's a very intimate pose. Yeah. It's mutually assured destruction if he farts or, like, you know, <laughs> the, you know a bit of wee comes out. Like, she's going to cop it. Yeah. Like, mutually. 
<laughs> deterrence. Yeah. Um, <laughs> He's at more risk because she's completely naked. Well, what if she did a tub girl? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. We're not linking that in the show notes. No, we're not linking no. tub girl. That's, uh, no. yeah, you've been That's warned. your own business. <laughs> no, no, uh, no. Don't look at it. Don't. Don't. Just don't. Is tub girl crikey cool? <laughs> no. No. Why? Um, it would make you say crikey, wouldn't it? <laughs> that's true, it would. Fucking hell. Um, but I really love this. Um, in an interview with Nicola Bateman, she was just like, oh, what were you thinking like when you were down there? And she's just like, I just hoped he wouldn't fall over. Like that yeah. was literally her only concern. They had a very close relationship. One thing I learned and this was the case with Nicola Bateman and also his biographer and a few other friends he had, like he occasionally had sex with women. I think maybe a bit like gender, maybe like, although he called himself a homosexual, maybe it was a bit more fluid than that. Um, But he said to, when he met Nicola Bateman, he was like, let's get the sex over and done with so we can just be friends. Aww. And so they had sex a few times and then lifelong friends and were married. And it seemed like the marriage was part of like, and she even said this too, that the marriage was part of like a performance. But yeah, like it, it, it was an interesting read um, because they are obviously the best of friends and love each other very much. But the way she described home life with Lee Bowery, because she did live with him for a time, um, like he was actually quite, mentally and emotionally abusive um Uh. and did like belittle her quite a lot and i I, that's sort of why i gave the preamble at the start was like i don't want to gloss over the parts of people just because it was this really beautiful relationship yeah uh, on the outside and and sure to be sure uh you know a non-conventional one but there were still features of you know, a conventional marriage um, at home as well. But yeah, she, there's this also next, just while we're on the topic of Nicola Bateman, um, there was a portrait painter who painted some portraits of Lee Bowery as he was like totally naked. And they're quite powerful because, you know, you see this person who is the most dressed up of all time and he is just starkly painted. Um, But there was this beautiful photo of him and Nicola Bateman posing for one of these paintings and I really loved it they're sort of laying on this bed and the way that they just have their legs touching I don't know it just feels like very loving and close and it does sort of just remind me of how you know especially queer friendships can be like they can be strictly romantic not strictly platonic they can be I mean, they can be very physically intimate. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I just thought this was a really beautiful picture. Sorry about the dick and balls uh, on the <laughs> on the uh, screen right now. Um, but this yeah. would not. This would not pass the New South Wales Police Mardi Gras decency check. This this would not. <laughs> which I'm sure Lee Bowery would be in full support of. Yeah. <laughs> Look, look, this is probably how me and my wife sleep. It's like some nights yeah. it's too fucking hot yeah. to cuddle. So you it's cuddle. like, okay, I'll just keep like a leg on you. So, you know, there's still some affection, but like, no, it is too hot to cuddle. Yeah, it very, and I guess that's another thing, right? It's like they, we know that they have this unconventional marriage and yet that is literally just like a couple yeah. laying down or whatever. Mm. Um, oh, and here we go. So whoever wants to sort of describe this, um, 
of it, that's Lee Bowery's portrait in the background. Um, can I have a go? Go for it. He's he's doing some things that I I definitely see some of the the aspects of what he's wearing are definitely things that are very familiar in particular kink scenes. Mm. So and I'm like I wonder how much there's a crossover between what he's doing like that you know that whole thing of wanting to look like a rubber sex doll that's like yes there are people who who really do that but he's just doing that in public so he's got he's got like a little kind of a balaclava on and then this big huge dress and um the balaclava is made out of the same floral material as the dress he's got a black looks like leather belt with a big buckle on it and a black leather collar and the buckle on the collar looks like it's in the shape of a bee but I might be wrong. It might just be a very big square and it's a strange angle. But um, And he's drawn exaggerated lips on. But he's also got this, um, it looks like a World War One German soldier's hat. Yes, it's a Kaiser helmet. Yeah. A Kaiser helmet. Yeah. And they're at an art gallery and the portrait of him is in the background and there's a whole lot of people standing behind him who are obviously, you know, there to see the, they're, they're art people. It's not a queer nightclub it's a it's an art show yeah um and he's just looking dead on at the camera with these really sort of big white exaggerated eyes and this big mouth and it's yeah he's got those aspects of looking like a sex doll but who would have a sex doll of this right um, <laughs> very yeah. spooky sex doll yeah well for one fans maybe Mm. Oh. <laughs> just the way the flash has been used to like fully illuminate bowery while everyone behind him is like you know still normally lit but like you know the fact that they're dressed you know conventionally versus like bowery's outfit mm -hmm. and bowery being lit it's a great photo it like really draws your eyes to bowery yeah. absolutely and then you have this like in in the background you have this portrait of him where he's just a guy yeah he's just a guy there's nothing particularly special just looking at him um and then you see him in the foreground it's like holy shit like you are a presence um and that's another thing about bowery is he was always described as very very charming and witty and a few other things i wanted to bring up is this part often gets glossed over um in descriptions of his performances but he used a lot of bodily fluids whether real or i don't know if emulated is the word like prosthetic or makeup. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he, you know, holes were out and, you know, he put pegs on his dick. I think the, the kink aspect of it mm. is something I'm not very knowledgeable about, but it's definitely an element of it, um, as Jules sort of mentioned. And one of the books that I did borrow was called, um, like, Fetishism in Fashion, but I didn't. Mm. it went way over my head. So I was like, whoop, this book is not for me. Like, I don't – like, I'm sure it's very interesting. I just don't – my – uh, vocab around art is very very tiny and so kind of getting to the end of his life as well um, he started definitely doing more abstract performances um, like his last one was it was in the Netherlands and he was totally naked except for a black stocking that stopped at the top of his thighs he had black makeup covering his face and head which in parentheses I put this is fine for the Netherlands <laughs> um, being in blackface <laughs> they're, they're used yeah. to that at Christmas time yeah. um, I didn't know it was Christmas <laughs> exactly Pete is that you <laughs> um, 
His penis and nipples were adorned adorned with wooden clothes pegs. He was suspended upside down by his ankles. He recited some words and then smashed through a sheet of plate glass that was placed directly in front of him. Um, And a lot of people, because he had known that he was dying, like he was months off dying, um, it was called The Laugh of Number 12. And it was like, it seemed like there's like some deeper meaning I don't know, maybe astrology people know. Uh, seemed like he was mocking death a little bit um, or hanging in the precipice of it. But there's some more stuff if you want to go down into it. And then um, finally, I think that's mostly everything. I just wanted to talk a bit more about his ongoing influence. Um, Bowery's only live appearances in Australia were while tour- touring uh, with Michael Clark's dance company in 1986. But he's undoubtedly a part of the Australian material culture. Some of his pieces are permanently at the National Art Gallery of Victoria. The National Portrait Gallery has at least two portraits of him. Uh, And there have been multiple exhibitions about him in different Australian galleries over the years. So kind of to end this episode on a happy note, I think this has been a largely happy episode. And to tie it back to my first introduction to Lee Bowery, one hyperlocal way that Bowery's legacy remains is in the Bowery balls or Bowery house parties that Lucas mentioned, um, organized by the Stitchery Collective in Brisbane. I read a portfolio statement by some of the people involved in the Stitchery Collective, um, and they describe these parties as annual celebratory events that encourage radical dress up and seek to emphasize the significance of costume as a way to enable social risk taking and experimentation. Are they still going? I think Are so. They... Oh. <laughs> I saw is that there was, I found uh, the body sculpting artist. Uh, I'll link that shortly. But uh, yeah, it looked like there was one last year and they are about to put on in April a show celebrating Vivian Westwood. Oh. So very punk. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm probably, I might go. Yeah, might you go absolutely have to go. Oh my gosh. And Vivian Westwood was heavily inspired, inspired by Bowery as well. Yeah. I will try not to do a Vivian Bastard cosplay, but I'll see how I go. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you probably could and uh, it would be okay. Staple <laughs> some stuff into your forehead. Why not? <laughs> As I often do. <laughs> I do that anyway. Um, so in the lead up to these Bowery Ball, Bowery House events, uh, visual media is distributed to attendees to inspire creativity and as well as highlighting Bowery's continuing influence in fashion, contemporary media, and drag culture, because a lot of the time Bowery's influence, while very much there, is rarely sort of uh, acknowledged. The costumes created by the attendees are often challenging not only to wear, but are challenging the are challenging to bodily, social, and gender norms. Um, these costumes are a reflection of queer cultures of costume and utilize the drag tr- tradition of hierarchy, which I had never heard before, mm. which is the explicit referencing of previous performances and costumes. Um, the Citri Collective have posted hundreds and hundreds of photos from these events that they say highlight moments of costumed joy, community and extravagant social performance. And I wrote, all of this sounds very Jewel-centric. Yeah, yeah, I'm just like, uh, I have to get to one of these. This I is you. To, this is my new life mission. <laughs> right? Is, like, I, I'm really, I'm really blown away learning about, like, the intensely cool shit that's in Brisbane. There is some real cool shit if you know where to look. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, like I, we hear it. Anyway, no, that's a different topic. Anyway. No, no, I'm. I'm if you want yeah, to say anything, I'm just going to say, um, you know, in in Australia, in you know, you hear a lot about like there's very much this idea that the queer that that queer culture in Australia is limited solely to Sydney and Melbourne, but my experience is very much that Canberra has incredible queer underground stuff happening and it sounds like Brisbane does as well yeah. and I mean Adelaide has the whole Fringe Festival which is you know all the people I know who perform at the Fringe Festival are very queer <laughs> oh yes um, <laughs> again circus performers almost always queer and non-monogamous as well <laughs> I'm sort of fascinated by kind of looking at those at those ways in which um you know we've got this <laughs> I don't know, and also like if you consider the fact that Bowery left Australia because there was nowhere like radical or avant-garde enough for his art, like at the time it was it was too much, and he had to go to London yes. to be appreciated. Just the fact that like Australia at that time, like Australia now, yeah. there's probably a better ecosystem for a Lee Bowery mm. to work within, but. But sh sure as shit in the 60s and 70s, like you would have been, you would have been kicking up against some hard barriers. Like we sadly would have been boring as shit back then. Well, let's yeah, just 80s think. as well. Yeah. Let's just think he left to go to London in 1980. The year mm. prior, wasn't that when a whole bunch of people's freaking names and numbers and jobs uh, were posted? Two years, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Like exactly, that's kind of the environment that he's, he's in yeah going to london makes complete and total sense it would have been london or new york with this kind of art yeah and but i love the fact that i i just think that's so beautiful that there's this hardcore ongoing bowery tribute Absolutely. in a really massive way in brisbane in brisbane of all yeah. places which is also like brisbane as a queer mecca is not a thing, an, an assumption that people would make. No way. But a huge amount of the, like, the coolest queers I know live in Brisbane. <laughs> and um, one of them's on this podcast. <laughs> and, um, yeah, but, like, that's not happening in Sydney. That's not happening in Melbourne. No. Yeah, I got it. What what time of year do they have those? Do you know? Um, it's like, usually around... Um, September, it looks like. But it might, it might change every year. I'm just, like, little little holiday for little road trip for <laughs> yeah little. absolutely yeah i'll hopefully have a spare room by then too Ooh. but um i i just want to bring this page up so this is some of the photos from the 2019 um bowery house party um and you see all these gorgeous queers you can obviously see them paying their respect to uh lee bowery but also hello what that's my little is that josie no but that's no that's i never went oh. But it's my okay. little knitted balaclava I made for oh, the... Oh, it's beautiful. Because my, yeah, the person I was dating gave it to a baby queer who had nothing to wear. Oh, well, that's also no, nice. I, that's, I thought that was oh, that's very That's sweet. beautiful. And um, that's, oh, that's really lovely. Yeah. Um, so I love those devil horns a few people are rocking. I know. Mm. There are so many great photos. Just, yeah. Yeah, like people are going nuts. It's like intestines there. What's that? <laughs> yeah, sausages it or dicks. Just... It, it occurred to me like these events they get like 
One year they had like Paul Mack DJ. Oh really? Yeah. Pretty well known Australian yeah. DJ. So like they get they get a decent you know the music and you know everything the production would have been off the hook. Yes. God, this is incredible. Yeah. So I'm just like yeah going through pictures now of holy shit of um yeah the Bowery House parties and they're very very camp. But yeah that that's um that's Lee Bowery for you folks. I learnt so much. Oh, I'm glad. I was so I, I didn't even get to touch on everything, but I think it would have went too long then. Um, yeah, thanks for for humoring me. I've I've got another thing to point out, and it's kind of funny. Like, uh, you know, talking about like masculinity within Australia and and masculinity broadly. Like, it's been my. I'm not sure if I've said this on the podcast before, but maybe like to one of you, just like chatting. Um, every there is this thing within Australia that like if you dress like this, if you dress in like a not even just like full on crazy manner, but like just vaguely gender fluid, uh, you know, that is, you know, forbidden for like men to do, for masculine people to do. But, but it's always been my experience that every time, because, you know, like I said, I went to uni with like the people who run this event. So they had costume parties all the time. Yeah. And I feel like every time I, and because the bar was so high, it was just like, yeah, we're a fucking tutu. Yeah, go as old Greg from Mighty Boosh or whatever. <laughs> Every time I went to one of these parties in like, you know, tights and sequin tops, I hooked up. <laughs> yeah, you would have. You know, Absolutely. Like, but it was like, and I remember like one year, like the first year I went to Splendor in the Grass, the girl I was dating at the time was like, you know, this very pretty tall brunette. And, you know, I remember we were like just making out and I was wearing like, you know, pink jeans and a poncho and like, you know, all sorts of rainbow shit. And this guy in a, this average looking short dude in a polo shirt, like, got kind of mad at me. It was just like, how the fuck are you able to like pull chicks like this? Oh, look, girls girls love it when a guy is a little bit fruity. Oh, absolutely. Yes. You got the Harry Styles effect happening there, Lucas. It's true. Also, just very much. as a side note, interesting that you brought up the Mighty Boosh because Noel Fielding, uh, one of his huge inspirations is Lee Bowery. Um, so there you go. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. No, the second you said Mighty Boosh, you said Old Greg. I was like, oh, I see. Oh, yeah. Where, oh, where, where Noel Fielding absolutely got that. Absolutely. And yeah, I think there's a quote. Um, I read it on the wiki page that um, there's like a, a quote in the Mighty Boosh that references Lee Bowery. And it's just one of those little nods in popular culture. Um, yeah. Now I'll have to go back and rewatch all of Mighty Boosh. Just to find that. Oh, uh... yeah. <laughs> Yeah. We as uh, during this period of my life, I watched so much Mighty Boosh <laughs> that I just cannot fucking watch it again. Yeah, fair enough. Um, yeah, well, I think that's everything. So thank you so much, guys, and thank you so much for being okay with me stepping back for a while. And I also am totally confident that you both are going to continue doing a wonderful job with the show. Um, We're going to miss you so much. I'm going to miss it too. I, I'm, I am coming back. It's just yeah. until I. Yeah, just need shit sorted. That's fair. Josie still has like is yeah. still a like still has produ producer veto oh, power. Thank God. So like don't worry. They, <laughs> and still has access to the Twitter, sadly. No, so, it's good. It's good. Not, <laughs> no, it's very good. Thank you. Yeah. So so uh, yeah, Josie will still very much be present, but And that stops it from just becoming a total anime podcast. 
that's why. That's the only reason why I still have yeah. those privileges. You at least he's in a pod. I was about to make a joke. Yeah, I don't. I don't even know that much about anime. But, but it, like, I'm just worried about what will happen without your influence. It's gonna happen. Um, it's like um, yeah. castanization or whatever it is, <laughs> yes. uh, but for anime podcasts. Yeah. Re- regress to crab anime. <laughs> yes. Um, oh. Look, and and we're just gonna end this with uh, the entire theme song of Neon Genesis Evangelion. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.